Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Curlin. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of our conversation with Mary Hunter. We've been using Mary's recent posts in her Stale Cheerios blog as the launching point for an afternoon's conversation. We began in part one with desperation clicks. Last week we talked about reinforcement strategies, and now we're about to launch into a discussion that centered around my favorite of Mary's recent Stale Cheerios posts. So we'll jump into the conversation and find out which one that is. So I think my favorite of the recent blog posts, Dale Cheerio posts that you've done, is are you clicking for your own behavior or your animal's behavior? Mm. So you're, we're talking about, you're saying, you know, the trainer's using positive reinforcement. And I think the example you're giving is a situation where you have a handler who is working on, on being able to touch a horse. So she's reaching up towards the horse's ears. And as her hand touches the horse's ears, she's clicking and, and reinforcing. And that you make the really important and powerful observation that the trainer is clicking for her own behavior. And oftentimes in these scenarios, the trainer is not paying attention to the animal's behavior. So the, the trainer is reached out. She's briefly touched the animal's ear, but as she's reaching out for the ear, maybe the horses, the, the muscles around the horse's eyes get tense, or his, the muscles around his, his mouth get tense, or he flicks his tail. That the trainer's making contact with the ear, but she's not noticing the emotional behavior that is occurring as she is reinforcing her own behavior. And I thought that this was a really, really important observation. So would you like to expand on that? So I think, I think there's tons and tons of examples of this yeah. if we start looking. So like I'm working on teaching my horse to be comfortable being saddled. I set the saddle on the horse and I click. I'm clicking for me putting the saddle on the horse. I'm not clicking for the horse, but I'm not you know, I may not be watching the horse's behavior or putting on a bridle, rushing a horse, doing fly spray. You often see people, okay, my criteria is I'm going to spray one time. Now my criteria is I'm going to spray two times. Now my criteria is I'm going to spray five times. And their criteria is based for what they're clicking is based. I mean, the horse has to be standing still, but often, often we're just looking at is the horse standing still? And then we're clicking for things that we are doing, you know, the horse is afraid of such and such, and I'm going to, you know, hold it up or move it closer to the horse. And I'm clicking for me being able to move it closer and closer. So I would just, the first thing I would encourage people to do is just look at their own training. And especially for grooming tasks, husbandry training, uh, veterinary care type stuff, desensitization type stuff. Think about, are you clicking for something that your animal is doing or are you clicking for something that 
you are doing. And, and it's okay sometimes for the animal to be standing still, but you should have a clear criteria about, you know, how they should be looking, what should they be doing while they're standing still, and not just be focused on, I did something and the horse didn't move away, which I think is often what we're clicking for. We're clicking for, I put the saddle on the horse and the horse didn't move away, which is the absence of a behavior, so I'll click and I'll give them a treat. And it's, it's such a universal because there are so many of those situations, as you say. Basically, the, all of the husbandry skills involve, it's, it's a really yeah. slippery slope that you're on. Am I paying enough attention to the emotional behavior that's being presented? So I talk about the, the four second rule. If you think your horse is going to move away in four seconds, stop what you're doing in three. Well, what's the indicator that the horse might be moving away in four seconds? What are you seeing? What needs to be present for you to say, I, I'm confident that I could stroke my horse for four seconds. What are you seeing in the horse's behavior that indicates to you that you can keep going? Or what are you seeing in the horse's behavior that is indicating to you that I, I better stop now because if I keep going, he's going to move. And even sometimes they may not move, but they're only tolerating. Right. You know, what you're doing. Right. So it's like, what signs are you seeing that are telling you that the horse is tolerating? Because I got, I got into an interesting discussion with someone recently who was saying, well, but it's okay if the horse is just, or a dog or whatever animal is just tolerating because you know, you're clicking and giving treats. So, you know, the, all the happy value of the treats is going to transfer over to your training situation. And, you know, I do think sometimes the animals chill out and get comfortable with things, but, but often I find the opposite happens. You know, we, they're, they're tolerant, they're tense. We're paying them for standing there while we put the saddle on and it never gets better. It just, that's what it, you know, it, that's what we're reinforcing. We're reinforcing standing there, being tense, tolerating it. Though we're giving lots of goodies and we think, oh, we're giving lots and lots of positive reinforcement, the animal should love this. All they're learning is to stand there and be tense and to tolerate what we're doing. Yeah, it's not good enough because especially for something like saddling and they're, they're just tolerating it. But that tolerating is translated into tense muscles. And that's what you're taking into the, the ride. That's not, that's not a good deal. So it's really learning to recognize what, is my, what does my learner look like? What does relaxed look like to me for this individual? And we've talked about this, Dominique, we've talked about this in some recent podcasts of do we recognize not just generically what does a horse look like when he's relaxed, but what does my individual horse look like when he's relaxed, when he's content, when he's frustrated, when he's confused? What does that look like? And am I paying attention to that and modifying my behavior based on what I'm seeing? So yeah, I could reach up and touch the horse's ears. But what else was going on that would indicate to me that, that I can keep building on this behavior 
or there there's some problems here that I need to go and address before I keep keep on. You know, I'm tempted again to cite Michaela's work with the cribbing project because I think one big part was, you know, the the fact that the horse, uh, you know, when she was doing the um, uh, because the, her horse, after the cribbing project, she did a lot of work on saddling yes. the horse because Blondie would not, uh, would have a lot of reaction, including cribbing actually, uh, when she was saddled, especially when she would tie the girth. And so she did a lot of work with the polo wrap away from the training area. She used a polo wrap to in place of the girth. And so she worked at first with the polo wrap being all rolled up and eventually she started unrolling the polo wrap so that it looked more and more like the girth. And she had the horse target the polo wrap, not her put the polo wrap on the horse. So the horse would have a lot of agency yes. It was the horse deciding to target the polo wrap. Yeah. It's a big there, difference. There, are, there was a lot in there so that if Blondie showed any discomfort, any emotional behavior that was showing that she was not comfortable with what Michaela was doing, Michaela immediately adjusted and changed. She worked with consistent pattern, so there was predictability which was really important mm -hmm. for Blondie. And she included the active agency. And more and more, I think mm -hmm. there is, this would be an interesting thing, Mary, to pass into the, to off to the behavioral analyst to say, go study this. You know, what is the difference between, we'll call it passive compliance, just stand there while I do things to you. And, mm -hmm. and training that involves some form of active agency. So Blondie had to bring her shoulder, her neck to the polo wrap, that there is some active participation on the part of the learner. And when I've seen horses that makes, sometimes when they make these really profound changes, it's because we've included an element that involved the active agency in the horse. I think maybe, you know, when you do catch yourself clicking your own behavior, that this may be one strategy, one route, one antidote to this, you know, that you're, you're finding, oh, I'm really clicking my, my own behavior. Well, give some active agency to the animal. And I think it'll be a completely different yeah. outcome. And you, and you will no longer have a horse that is just tolerating and that you've actually trained to tolerate. I think one other thing that can be really important is to have some sort of pattern or baseline where you do know your animal is completely calm and happy and comfortable, however you define that for your animal to compare to. Um, so like, this was years ago, Alex may remember, there was a, there was an orca student who did a project trying to get her dog to be comfortable around a vacuum cleaner. And she did some, the, the really interesting thing here to talk about 
is she did some probes as well throughout the study where she did basically the same thing with a stool where she would practice some of the things she was trying to practice with the vacuum cleaner. And the, the interesting thing was in some of the vacuum cleaner steps and conditions, you could see that the dog was doing the behavior, like approaching it or targeting or stuff, but then, and, it, and the dog looked basically okay sometimes, but when you compared the dog's energy level and body language in the condition where the dog was doing the same behaviors to the stool, you saw that it was mm. completely, they looked like two different dogs. Mm. I think it's really important to, to have an idea of like, compared to kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like what's your animal doing when he's happy and calm and relaxed and completely comfortable in a situation? Because I think we can get into situations where we're teaching the animal to be active, but there's still not, there's still things, if we were comparing it to like a neutral condition, there would be things about their body language that would tell us, mm. you know what, they're, they're actively doing things, but they're not quite, it's not quite what I want. So like I, right. this was a month or so ago, I have video of it, but I, I'm, I, there's, there's always the challenge of finding time to edit video. Yes. So I, I introduced Apollo to a, um, an umbrella to me carrying an umbrella. And I, I didn't necessarily want to spend a whole lot of time with him touching it or targeting and stuff like that because I wanted it to be above me. But so how we started was without the umbrella at all and just with a square of four mats and just walking a pattern of walking from mat to mat to mat to mat, which is something he knows how to do. He's happy doing it. He's relaxed doing it. And I had a, a friend helping me that day so I could get her then to do things like standing in the middle of the circle and holding the umbrella or walking different places with the umbrella. But every time we added a new step and changed things, we could compare what Apollo was doing based on that, that starting baseline of just walking the, the square from mat to mat. So if we, mm -hmm. so if we increase the criteria and he was now walking slower or he was stopping, or he was turning to look at things, or there was tension, or there were changes in his body language, then we had, we had kind of a starting point. We had a baseline. We had a, a repeatable pattern that we could compare back to, and that if we did get on a step that wasn't right, that we could go back to. So I think, I think patterns can be really, really useful because they give you something to compare to, especially if you start, start with a pattern that you know your animal can already happily do. I, I think that's a really good point. And I'm, I'm, well, I'm thinking right now of a video that I was sent recently, where my impression of the horse was he was looking really unhappy. And when I mentioned it to his person, she was shocked. It's like, oh, that wasn't what I was expecting at all, because he's, he's really very happy horse. And he's, he's, he, he loves the training. Oh, interesting. But I believe you because I know that, I know you know your horse and I know the energy that, like when I'm around Robin, you know, the, his, the energy that, that he presents to me, it's really clear when he is enjoying the work and when he's going, I'd, I'd like to be doing something else right now. 
open that gate, human, the spring grass is calling me. And so I, I said, okay, over a number of years of training, this expression has been trained in and looking at it cold, he looks grumpy to me, but I look grumpy when I'm concentrating. When I'm concentrating, I tend to scowl. So someone would might look at that and say, oh, Alex doesn't like the, this presenter at all. And Noah's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated by what this person is, is talking about. And when I'm really concentrating, I scowl. So we need to know our individual and what they express. And I think having that baseline pattern is a good way of creating a starting point, and then you introduce the new elements and you see what changes. It's a really good point. Yeah, so, you know, if you're working on something like fly spray, start out by just walking around and, you know, holding your cell phone like you're taking photos of your horse, yeah. which your horse is probably used to, and and take a, actually, you can't do your cell phone if you're take, if you're using your cell phone to take video. Um, <laughs> But that's that's the problem these days, you know, with, you know, walk around your horse and pet your horse while you hold your water bottle or something yeah. and, and use that as a video for your starting point. And now if you hold the bottle of fly spray and walk around your horse, you can do one of these A-B reversals. Like, do you, do you notice any changes? Um, but having having something to compare to, I think, can be really, really useful. Yeah. Before we run out of time, I want to bring us in, and this is actually the great segue because one of the other posts, and, and I think it really ties everything that we've talked about this afternoon beautifully together. So you had the post on building behaviors, teaching the pieces before you assemble them. And you were talking about the work of Dr. Solzer Azarov's work uh, that comes from some of the instructional design. And the big idea that was being talked about was that we need to have well-designed instructional materials and shaping plans if we want the learners to be successful. So if a learner is struggling or confused, we should not blame the learner. Instead, we should adjust our training. And then you had this quote, a fairly basic principle for establishing chains efficiently, one that should be obvious by now, is to try to form the chain from behaviors that are already part of the individual's repertoire. And then you gave the example of it's easier to teach children to write their names if they can already write each of the component letters than it is to shape the writing of each letter as part of the instructional procedure. It's easier to teach children to dress themselves if they already know how to button, zip, tie, and snap than it is to teach them those component behaviors simultaneously. And I, I think that's such a powerful and important statement and one that kind of brings all of these pieces together. So talk a little bit more about that. We need to, we need to understand. So first of all, I think one of the skills, and, and this was another of your blog posts of what makes for an advanced trainer, that uh, one of the skills that trainers gain is being able to look at a complex behavior and to tease it apart into its components. So if I'm thinking about dressing a child, oh, oh horrors, let me, let, me, let me go find Susan Friedman here. Susan, have a child, <laughs> would be my response to it. But you know, it might not occur to me that this, this individual doesn't know how to 
button buttons because, you know, I've been button buttons for a lot of years. So it's, isn't that something that we all know how to do? No, it's not. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I just gave the example of introducing the, the umbrella to Apollo, which we, we easily did in about a dozen shaping steps in one day. But we started with a pattern of him walking from mat to mat with me walking with him with a square of four mats. And so if, if I get around to editing these videos and post them online and someone sees that and says, oh, look, this is perfect. If you have a horse walking from mat to mat, it's really easy to introduce an umbrella and they go out and try it with their horse and their horse has no idea how to stand on a mat or how to walk from mat to mat. So they're trying to they're trying to reinforce and train the mat behavior at the same time that they're trying to go through the shaping steps to introduce the umbrella, that's going to be a giant disaster. Yes. You know, I can just imagine it happening in my head right now. So like one reason why that worked really well for Apollo was because the, the component of standing on a mat and walking with me from mat to mat was already there in his, in his repertoire. So I think there's, there's lots of times when we're trying to train things and it feels like we have a good progression of steps, but we're often lumping. Yes. So, you know, like a, a example, another example would be like, say you're training your horse to drop his head into a halter. You know, you're, maybe you have, a, you have an older horse and you're retraining the haltering behavior. So you're trying to teach him how to put his nose in the halter you're trying to teach him how to lower his head and you're trying to teach him how to lower his head with duration all at the same time. And so it's messy and it goes slowly. Whereas if instead you started by teaching him to lower his head, lower his head with duration, stick his nose through things, target things, and you had all of these pieces, then you could get the halter and rely on all these components he already had. And you could probably teach the haltering behavior in an afternoon yes. but you would be able to do it really you know so we watch people shaping things and it goes really really quickly and we th think oh that trainer is really really skilled but it's because they've designed a shaping program where their animal already has all of the components and this shaping program is the logical next step when you have all of these components yeah. in place the the more repertoire you have then the faster and easier it becomes in training training something new it just pops right out um, which is really fun when you get to that stage in the training where you want to tr explore something new and it just it just pops out because the components are in place or then we have the situation you described earlier with Apollo where we wanted to explore the backing in a square lesson because we made that uh, a group project for one of the coaching sessions and what was fun in that is okay, it's a fairly, it's a, it's part of the foundation lessons. So we're looking at this as, as establishing that core repertoire. But as we explored the backing in the square, we kept going smaller and smaller and smaller till it's just, well, can I just begin to slide down a lead rope? But in exploring and, and teasing apart all of those it's like the, the Russian nested dolls, you know, where you, you have the wooden doll and you in two halves and you unscrew it and you open it up and there's a smaller doll inside and there's a smaller doll inside. And there's a smaller doll inside that one that we keep finding this smaller 
piece that is worth exploring and then a, another element that's worth exploring and another element that's worth exploring. But as you explore those things, because they are universals, that you are going, these are skills that are going to be used in basically everything that you train, that it is worth looking at them in that level of detail because it is going to have an impact on everything that you ask of your horse. So that, that teasing apart becomes both a fascinating process and a really productive process. And, and the backing in the square is a good example because, you, you know, we were talking about in one of the classes, you know, the backing in the square, if you have really good forward, really good back, really good asking your horse to move his hips, the backing in the square is an outcome, yeah. you know, that just emerges. So it's not like, it's not like you're training your horse to back in a square. If you've built the components and you have all the right pieces, then the backing in the square exercise becomes really easy. But then on the other hand, it can also be a really revealing exercise because it, it can show you where there's components that maybe you thought were there and they're, they're not there or you thought they're there, but you need to tweak them or, or, or revisit them or, or refine them. So, you know, I think some of these more complex exercises, they have so many components, you know, it can be fun to teach all the components and see the complex exercise pop out. But at the same time, if we're trying to work on the complex exercise and it feels challenging or it feels tough or we just feel like we keep getting stuck, I think the tendency is just to keep working on the exercise and keep working there. And really the, the really important piece is trying to isolate and assess like what are the components that are missing and how can I go back and work on those components and put them in repertoire so that when I come back to this more complex exercise, it's really easy for, for me and my horse to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what are the things that, you know, I think about some of these, the, we, you talked about the food delivery earlier and you want in certain exercises, you want your hand to go to a neutral position, but over time that's gotten, that's slipped, you know, that, uh, so your hand is, is going into the tree pouch, whatever it is. And in so many of these behaviors, it's easy for things to slip. So you know, like the backing, one of the things that, that can slip is, are you letting go? So uh, you know, you slide down and you're sliding down a lead and you're asking the horse to begin to back up. And the tendency that people have is to stay on the lead. So it's that mm -hmm. whole distinction between, is this lead a starter button cue or a constant on cue? You know, I was thinking about this the other day as we were going through the backing in the square that I've always used the term starter button cue. It predates the modern use. You know, it's like I, I, I use that term. It's in the first book the starter button cue, but it has, I think, a different meaning. So the starter button mm -hmm. cue is like turning the, your, your key in the ignition of your car. You turn the key, your car starts. You don't keep turning the key the whole time you're driving. You, the, the behavior is initiated, and that cue now turns off. But there may be other cues that are constant on that stay 
that are that stay active while the animal's performing the behavior. So if you want the car to keep going, you have to keep your foot on the yeah yeah the yeah gas pedal. And I I started thinking about this. This actually came from Karen Pryor's book Lads Before the Wind, where she was describing some of the dolphin training, and in some of the cues, as long as the signal was on, the dolphins would continue to jump out of the water and do flips and jump out of the water and do flips. And as soon as the signal turned off, they would stop jumping. So it was a constant on signal. And there were other signals that were initiator signals. You know, the whistle blew, the dolphin was to jump out of the water and leap over a, a jump let's say. But the signal wasn't on the whole time. And I really started looking at that in terms of the horses. And there, there's things that are, it's so clear when you ask a horse to canter and there are cues that we use that ask for that transition into the canter. And you watch beginner riders and maybe the instructor has told them, now squeeze with your leg to make the horse go. And so the beginner rider squeezes with their legs, and because they're a little bit t tense, as the horse goes into a trot or into a canter, they continue to squeeze with their legs. And, and, and the poor horse is thinking, I've got some crazy predator on my back. I think maybe I should panic. But because the, the rider doesn't turn off that starter button cue. But there is a constant on cue. There's that motion of your seat following the horse's back with the beginner rider the horse will often fall out of the canter because the rider doesn't know yet how to follow the, the horse's back. And with the rope handling, you slide down the lead rope and the horse initiates into movement. We want to let go, we want to release. And it's the, the constant on is our body accompanying the horse's movement. But you can, dem I mean, it's so fascinating. You can demonstrate with people you can see it in the horses as well. But if you, if you have a human holding on to a lead rope, so they've got the horse's end of the lead, and you slide down the lead and you ask them to back up, for example, and, and they start to back up and you keep your hand on the lead. And then you, and you can videotape that and you, you know you have that, that's one example. And then you slide up the lead and as the person backs up, you release the lead but you continue to walk with the person as they back up and you videotape that. And what you will see is that when you have the, your hand on the lead as the constant on, the backing will, be, will not be as balanced, the, the footfalls will be heavier, the, the stride length will be different in the human who's backing. The balance is very, very different when that constant on presence on the lead. So it really matters that we train ourselves that this is a constant on cue, this is a starter button cue, and do I have the focus and the mental discipline? First of all, have I identified which it is? Have I thought about it? Is this something, is this, uh, do I want this cue to serve as a starter button or do I want it to serve as a constant on? And then do I have the focus to turn off my starter buttons? Or do I get caught in the contact trap? And it's so easy to get caught in the contact trap, meaning, you know, I, I ask my horse to back up, 
He started to back up. He stalled out. So then I slid up again. And then I thought, you know, I better, I better stay on the line a little bit longer because when I let go, he stops. And now you're in the contact trap. And that is so, it's so easy to fall into that. And it's something I know from my own training, I'm constantly monitoring that. Oh, look, I'm staying on the line, on the rain. Why am I doing that? Let me let go and see what happens. Have I fallen into the contact trap? And it's in this review of these core, this, it's like practicing scales. It's in the review of these core lessons that you can monitor and say, yes, I'm doing what I intended to do, or, oh, oops, <laughs> look at that. I'm staying on the line. And then the horses will always move. They will always move the get ready, get set, go. So there's that part of it too, meaning, and, th and that's what you were describing with Apollo. You were sliding up the line and he knows what you want. And he's being a really good, good horse. He's saying, oh, I know what the answer is. It's back up. And so before you can, you can slide very far, he's already responding to you. And that's lovely. We want our horses to be that light. That's a beautiful thing. And so you're not, you're not doing anything about it because, wow, he's, that, he's becoming so much more responsive. I don't have to go all the way to the snap. He's responding to me. And then you slide up again. Then before you, you can even really begin to, to move your hand onto the line, he's going, I know the answer. Let me back up. And then you get to the point where you start to think about moving your hand onto the line. And he's backing up. And, and I'm taking my hands off my stomach and he's backed up three steps and I'm scratching my head going, oh, this is yes. not quite what we not want. Not quite what we want. You know, that, that he's, you know, there's a point at which, you know, when we start thinking about, thinking about, thinking about going and they're already gone, that it feels, it feels out of balance. It feels out of control. It feel, and then, then we start to get into defensive clicking. Oh, I'm clicking you to keep you from moving. And defensive clicking is, is not good. And, and then it just, we, at first the lightness feels really, really good. And then we realize, you know what, actually today I want to start sliding down the lead and ask him to walk forward. Yeah. And, you know, you can't access that at all anymore because you have this horse eagerly backing up. So, so it, I think the, what you were talking about with the get ready, get set, go, like figuring out what you want the cue to be and making sure you stabilize it so that it's not continuing to slide in one direction or the other direction yeah. is really important. And recognizing this process is, is normal and natural, and it will be occurring on, you know, it's going to occur on an ongoing basis. So once you set the go, it doesn't mean that it's set in stone forevermore, that of course your clever horse is going to start anticipating. And... And it's a good thing until it's not. So it's like that for every behavior you teach, there's an opposite behavior you must teach to keep things in balance. And what do I need? So, you know, I want it all. I want my horse to be so responsive and light that I just start to breathe down a lead rope, as if we're talking about leads, and, and he's moving on the movement of the belly of the rope. I love that feel. Uh, I love that feel of, where the lead feels more like energy than an actual physical presence. But there are other times 
when I actually want to be on the SNAP for, you know, and there are lots of reasons for that. And it's the, uh, the one of the examples I give in the teaching is I want to say, so pass the cup of tea over your head. If you don't wait for the second clause and you just say, if I say pass the cup of tea and you're reaching and handing me a cup of tea, that's not the right answer. We need them to wait for enough of the sentence to be finished that they get the right answer. And so I think that's when I, we're thinking about where do I need to set the get ready, get set, go? I need to say, well, how much information do I need to give them before they go? And I need them to be able to wait and not wait with the the border collie waiting of you know or the, the horse at the starter gate of you know okay, when I when can I go when can I go when when you know it's like I need them to wait calmly for the full set of instructions and once those that full set of instructions is given then I can say and go and then they can give me the energy they want that's that's quite a process to get to that point very fun well. We have talked a long time and, and had a wonderful <clears throat> conversation. And I want to thank you for both spending the afternoon with us and also for writing those wonderful posts. So if people want to find more about your courses, they go to behaviorexplorer.com. And the Stale Cheerios is stalecheerios.com. Yeah, it's just stalecheerios.com. So that's my personal blog. And then the, the website with the, the courses and all the portal information is behaviorexplorer.com. So. And there are great videos there too. Oh, thank you. Great tutorials there too. Yeah. So yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad we did this. Yes. And thank you for inviting me. It's always fun to spend the afternoon chatting about training. And it, it always amazes me all the different directions it takes us so it's been a really great conversation <laughs> yes. so write another half dozen or so stale cheerios posts <laughs> and we'll do it again how's that all work? right that sounds like a plan very good thank, thank you mary you. thank you Bye. that was a fun conversation i'll repeat the resources for mary there is behaviorexplorer.com dominique is right there are some great portal videos there. Mary's blog is stalecheerios.com. Then we have the audio course with Mary. That's the Listen and Learn audio course on applied behavioral analysis. Go to equiosity.com to access that course. I feel as though I'm sending you all over the internet because there's also my website, theclickercenter.com, for the online clinic's and even more resources. So lots of ways to learn and to have fun. And speaking of fun, have fun with your horses. And next time we'll be starting a new conversation.